welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everyone, so kicking off a brand new season of the Health Tech Podcast with some new music, some new artwork, and a great guest, and that is my good friend, Dr. Harpreet Sood. So Harpreet's currently a practicing NHS doctor in primary care in London at University College Hospital. He's the co-founder and strategic advisor to the NHS Digital Academy, which is a £6 million programme developing a load of digital leaders in the NHS. He's done projects for healthcare and health tech internationally all around the world, US, France, Israel, Asia. Early in his career, he also founded a couple of health tech startups too, and he talks all about that on this episode. He's been advisor to the chief exec of the NHS. He sits on a load of different boards, and I'll tell you what, he knows a thing or two about health tech, so enjoy. How you doing? I was going to say this morning, it's really this afternoon, God, my brain. Yeah, how are you doing, mate? <laughs> yeah, good, James. Thanks for having me on here. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting. I've just uh, just given a lecture, actually, to some students at Imperial Business School. So, uh, oh, very nice. My, uh, my last thing of the day, and uh, exciting to be uh, talking to you. Very good, mate. Very good. I was going to. I was also going to say, where are you speaking to us from? But I guess it's. Uh, I guess it's Imperial Business School, right? Imperial College Business School, yeah, just down South Ken. Oh, very nice. <laughs> very nice. It's a lovely evening for it as well. Yeah. Um, cool, man. So, yeah, great to have you on. Really looking forward to this. Obviously, we know each other really well, and we've chatted loads, and I know loads and loads and loads about your journey. And yeah, really excited for our listeners to hear it. So, mate, why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about your story? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, James. Well, so I guess what I'll do is, um, I think uh, for everyone to be aware, what I'll do is I'll start from medical school time if I can. Um, so trained here in London, so I spent uh, um, six years at King's, King's College London School of Medicine. Guys and Tommies, that's what it was called before uh, it, it changed its name to the King's <laughs> College London School of Medicine. But um, but whilst that, I, I integrated um at actually Imperial College Business School uh, back back when I was doing my uh, medicine degree, uh, integrated in management um, and entrepreneurship uh, where I spent a year. So uh, after that, uh, I uh, went on the uh, academic uh, foundation program in medical education. So I went over to East London, then did my F1 over at uh, Homerton, which was very fun. And then F2 um, at Whips Cross, uh, which was equally good fun. But uh, it was even better because I did a whole rotation on medical education and microbiology, which was very exciting. So not much uh, happened there apart from just reading <laughs> and writing and, uh, and obviously letting people know about different antibiotics. Um, and then it was really actually uh, during my F2 year when I was uh, doing A&E uh, at Whips Cross, which was uh, an experience in its own right that... I'd been thinking for a while really to do some postgraduate studying and had been thinking about going off to the US for a couple of years to do some postgraduate there. And really throughout medical school, I've been thinking about it, uh, whether to do a master's in public health and international health policy at uh, Harvard uh, School of Public Health. So really got the, uh, you know, when I was disillusioned and uh, working in A&E, just put an application in, revised for the exam, sat that, and then was successful in that. Um, and went uh, to do my MPH after F2. Nice. That was good fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was great. Uh, so I did that um, and then moved to Boston uh, and was lucky to be funded for uh, a good chunk of it with some uh, with an award from the school, uh, 
which made the whole experience a bit more uh, digestible. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite an expensive part of the world. Postgraduate yeah. studies isn't cheap there, but but you know, luckily getting a bit of funding was was really good. Um, and really, there to be honest with you, James, um, really got to see the world from a completely different perspective. In that, um, you know, the, the masters was great fun and um, did lots of exciting stuff out there, and, and uh, really got stuck in actually, which was great. Um, but really opened my eyes more so to the world of health tech and health data and, and what that can really do for healthcare in general, actually. And and you know, whilst at medical school here, I I'd done bit of work in that space i actually interned with uh, a company called patient knows best which is still knocking about them. oh nice yeah. yeah yeah they're doing some good work there but one of the things i did when i was at medical school was i set up a social enterprise because one of the frustrations i had was that um you know when i was when i completed my bsc at the business school here i wanted to get internships at uh, you know non-medical settings and often when i went to these companies or tech a lot of them were like, well, you're a medical student, you should be spending time on the wards. Uh, and I just felt, well, actually, no, I think, you know, getting that clinical insight would probably be quite helpful for you. But back then, actually, for many of them, they weren't thinking like that. It was very much a technology lens or it was actually the consultant lens. And through that frustration, really, I set up a social enterprise with uh, Claire Lima and Emma Stanton, where it was called the Diagnosis Internship Network. And essentially what I was doing there was helping other medical students get internships in some of these companies that actually really valued clinical insight. Um, and so, you know, we developed a roster of clients like Bupa, Patient Knows Best, we had KPMG, we had, you know, some of the other big firms that came on board wow. that started offering internships. And actually it was really, really exciting because not only did that open up my network to a world that was unknown to me, but really got medical students at that stage involved with things they wouldn't have got involved with during medical school, essentially. Um, and, and I just felt there was a lot more we could do. And then moving to the US a few years later, that's really where it hit home for me that actually the NHS in the UK is doing great, but there's a long way to go in terms of where we want to get to. Um, really got stuck in, like I said, when I was in the US, uh, did my master's. Um, and then after my master's, I was fortunate enough to get a job at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital. Now, Brigham Women's is a uh, large academic medical center in Boston. You know, and you know what the US is like. They, they love their league tables and they love, uh, you know, ranking things. And Brigham was often the top 10 hospital in the country, which again was a great honor and, and privilege to be working there. But there I was uh, on a fellowship program, which was called the Deland Fellowship. And essentially it was set up by one of the presidents of Brigham back in the 70s uh, for aspiring and mid level, you know, executives that are interested in developing an executive career. Sorry in healthcare management administration and uh, being a non-US Brit, I was again quite lucky to have got this, but it was again a fascinating insight because it really made me appreciate, um, you know, what actually management looks like. Because again, here, I'd done a bit of work, but there wasn't anything really to get your teeth stuck in, again, from a clinician's perspective on what do we mean by management uh, and, and what does what that kind of world look like. And really, whilst doing that work and, and during my time at uh, Harvard, uh, the, the health tech thing just, just boomed, really. Um, <laughs> and it was so exciting that uh, whilst I was doing my day, day job, I actually co-founded a startup uh, as well in, in, uh, in pediatric asthma adherence. Uh, so we had just been funded by Harvard Medical School to go and seed funded to go and test an idea out for the local uh, community. 
And the thing is, this was quite an interesting time because you know, usually um, when I see companies, they often set up things based on their experiences or what they think might be, uh, might be a potential uh, problem or what they might think might be a potential solution. But what we yeah. actually was that we worked and went to the community, local community, and said, well, what are some of your key problems? Uh, what are you guys struggling with? Uh, and this was in, in a kind of a less developed part of Boston, um, you know, low socioeconomic settings. And, and one of the things they said to us was, look, you know, what we're really struggling with is that during the winter months, we get a, a spike in admission rates for children who have asthma. And the reason for that is because children just don't like taking inhalers. Is there any way you can help incentivize or make it more fun, inverted commas, for children to take inhalers so that they can comply with their treatment? So that for us became a real neat problem to solve and hence was born, as we then called it, the company called Mighty Lungs, which was essentially... Uh, <laughs> cool name. Yeah, no, it was essentially uh, set up in order to help children uh, incentivize them to take their inhalers through gamification, but mm. also sensor technology. Now, bear in mind, this was back in 2013-14 when... I was going to ask what year this was actually, yeah. because... Yeah, that was so. That was twenty thirteen. I mean, the yeah. I mean, there were companies that I only thought started doing similar stuff like two years ago. I mean, that's that's yeah. quite a long time ago. Yeah, no, that's a good point, James, and that's why I wanted to, I brought it up as well because it was a while ago, and um, you know, it was exciting. But you know, thinking about what makes a good business, actually, we were probably eighteen to twenty four months ahead of the too early. Uh, yeah, timing's and, and, everything. Yeah, Absolutely. Timing is critical, right? And uh, so even though we were solving a problem with Mighty Lungs for the local community with this innovative technology and sensor technology, bearing in mind it was a bit expensive to build all this, the timing just didn't work, didn't work for us. And, and there's a, quite a few other lessons I learned whilst doing the startup, you know, things like the importance of the right team. You know, often what we had was essentially mm -hmm. four doctors around the table with one business person trying to run a startup. Now, there's no value having four doctors around the table because each of them have their own opinion. And it comes to do their own thing. Right? You know what doctors are like. What they do is the right thing. So, you know, in hindsight, at the time, it was all great because we were all good friends and we had, you know, a colleague from the business, Harvard Business School, and we had a kind of a techie, but really the makeup of the team wasn't great. We were a bit ahead of the time. But, um, but the idea in itself was great. We went for it still. We, we got the money and we created storyboards. We did user testing. Who was the customer out of interest? So the customer twofold. One was the parents, which was really important because, again, even though this was a problem for the, the children and the hospital, the, the actual main customer here was a parent because if sure. you could help the parent help their child to take their inhalers frequently, then actually it's a win-win for everyone. And they were willing to pay for it out of their own pocket. Well, actually, so the U.S. Uh, system works a bit differently in that the payers have a big role in that, but also the local provider was willing to come on board to fund this because oh, it nice. meant that there was an incentive to keep people outside of hospital because they could make money through the savings. Um, again, the complexities of reimbursement in America are still you know, dumbfounding <laughs> in terms of how complex Indeed. it is. But the importance of that was, again, we had to realize where would the money come from, as any good business should. Um, but at this point, because it was seed funding, because we had the money, we had a bit of run rate to actually do an experiment. But what we did do, rather than just go and sit in the room and actually use it, you know, go and develop this ourselves, we did some rigorous testing and, and design work where we actually went out and spent a lot of time with the local community, really understanding how different 
socioeconomic groups who use technology? What does actually asthma mean to them? You know, because a lot of people, when they say asthma, when they say we're breathless, it can mean lots of different things. You know, thank you for start. Thank you for starting there, mate. Because yet again on this podcast, for all my listeners that I'm going to bore now, here is yes. another guest that started a startup, was obsessed with the problem, completely yes. immersed themselves in the world of the problem, spoke to every single person that that affects <laughs> yeah. to figure out exactly how and why that problem should be solved and how it should be solved, and came up with a solution. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Carry on. No, exactly. And uh, now, look, the point is, um, you know, it's, it's hard work, um, but, you know, you have to put the hard work in because if you don't, and, you know, again, and I'll come on to this in a part, but when, when I came back to the UK, I would see a lot of people that would come and see me and I'll be like, well, who are you solving this problem for? And often they didn't have an answer. They were like, well, we thought this was a problem. So we thought we'd go and create a startup around it. Mm. And the question is, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work like that. And, and, um, and so going back to my time with Mighty Lungs, really good experience. So I was doing that, but also really getting to understand what the role of IT in healthcare could be. I was involved with a big research project. We were looking at the deployment of electronic health records. And again, just understanding what this impact has on the quality and safety of healthcare. All this was very exciting. Uh, I was going to be Can I say, I, really, I just really enjoy the name Mighty Lungs because it reminds me of the Mighty Ducks. Exactly. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that in there. Just really, the really was, good name. The question was, how, how do we do it in order to make it fun, right? Um, and especially for children, because think about it from children's point of view. You know, you've got to get your mindset into their point of view that they don't see asthma as a you know, problem with their lungs. Right. You know, they, they see it as a, they don't want it. It's a stigma. You know, they want to be like other children. So if you make it fun, if you, if we gamify it, if we use technology that can help it where they don't notice it, there's a chance that they will probably use it. And you know, what, it's, 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 it. it's interesting. Yeah. Because it's something that's come up a few times again, quite recently, which is, yeah, go and solve the problem, but then make it joyous. And that's yeah. the that's the key to something that's really sticky and gets really yeah. adopted and really starts to spread. You know, if you can make it super joyous as well as solving the problem, like it goes, it goes such a long way. But yeah, very yeah. interesting. Well, actually, on that front, two more points I'd like to make, which I think will be relevant to the audience that we did, was that um, try and make sure that whatever your solution is, and we try and, we tried to do this, and it was very hard work. Was that how does this fit into the workflow? So, even though. It might have been relevant for the parents and it was relevant for the children. How does this relevant for the clinician? Because if, again, we don't engage the clinician and we don't understand their work routine with their work patterns and, you know, how this technology would fit seamlessly into the existing workflow, this would have never taken off. So not only were we doing user-centric you know, testing and design with the, the parent and the children, we were also spending time with the clinicians and understanding how do they interact with their patients day to day how can we ensure that this technology fits seamlessly into their workflows so that it doesn't delay their work or interrupt their work, which again, I often see with a lot of companies is that they want to just stick on a plaster or they want to stick on their solution mm. and make things more difficult. But the problem with that is that clinicians generally are so busy with day to day. They don't have, they can't think of something else being put on their workflow, which <laughs> makes it impossible. It's um, amazing. It's amazing for me, mate, just how succinctly you're putting so many of these points that we talk yeah. about on this podcast so often. They're like, I don't even need to come up here and summarize like what you're saying because you've already just just explained it so succinctly and so wonderfully that it's making my job very easy on this <laughs> side. But I just think from what you've told me so far, you've you've been on the steep part of every single learning curve with everything that you've done. You know, you you know, you went to medical school. You you then intercalated with 
um, management and entrepreneurship. So steep part of that curve, the steep part of the medical curve. You then qualified as a doctor, so the steep part of the being being on a job as well as being yeah. a clinical medic. And then you go to Harvard, and then you're on the steep part of that curve, and you start a business. And you see, you seem to be addicted to learning at this point, and you've just accumulated. A, and and even the way you talk about there, you know, you did you know user centered design here, and you did problem solving there, and a bit of technology. You know, you, you you're speaking as if a lot of this stuff. You, you completed it almost like you, you did genuinely learn all this stuff in that short space of time. It's incredible, like 10 years of your life, seemingly. Yeah, no, thanks, James. And, you know, like it's it was difficult, though, you know, I must say, even though talking about it might seem straightforward. And but at the time, it was very difficult because, you know, often things like this, you, you're isolated, right? You don't know whether you're doing mm. right. Obviously, you can get advice, you can get mentorship. But for a lot of people, it's a learning curve. And but I think that one of the key things I learned from this, especially through our mentors, is that all with all the things I've done is that I've tried to remain curious, right? You have to remain <laughs> curious and learn all the time because none of us know it all. None of us know how to do it. We learn as we go along and you have to be reflective and you have to learn on the job, right? Mm. But, um, and that for me has always been a key principle. Uh, and, and one of the, you know, so I talked about some of the lessons, but one of the other lessons I wanted to quickly mention, which we learned was that, you know, Often I find is that, you know, if, if you're in that health tech ecosystem, and again, Boston was a very vibrant health tech ecosystem. Oh, epic. Right? Yeah. But the point is, when you're in that ecosystem, everyone's just congratulating everyone because you're all doing wonderful things. But the point is, you're never getting critical feedback, right? Everyone's just saying, mate, you're brilliant. You're doing great stuff. Interesting. But that's not really getting to the root of up. Is it that are you really solving a problem or is what you're doing actually helping? So that's why for us to go out there and actually talk to people that weren't part of that kind of echo chamber or that ecosystem mm-hmm. and actually get some real world insights, I felt made us do a better job of what we are doing. Yeah, because you know the I mean? market is just going to punch you in the face well, if exactly. you've got it wrong. And that's why I say to a lot of entrepreneurs I meet who are running startups, is that just get out there. Actually, don't just stick in and go to the same events and talk to the same people. Get on the road. Go out yeah. and say, look, you know, go and talk to people that you wouldn't talk about and say, look, I'm, I'm kind of setting this up or I'm looking to do this get some real feedback, get some critical feedback. Because, you know, often you find is that what you think is a problem, you know, we're so diverse and multi-ethnic and so different in lots of different ways now, particularly in England, that you can get lots of different perspectives. Um, And just because you may live in a certain part of the world and you're hanging out with the same people doesn't mean your product is good or is scalable. And that's another thing I often say to them because, again, you know, being in a wealthy academic medical center at Brigham Women's and then going out to a local community center across the bridge two miles down the road was two different perspectives completely. Um, mm. And that for me was a real eye-opener to say, if you really want to develop a good product, go and spend time with the people that are actually going to use it, pay for it, but also who's going to give you honest feedback to say, nah, mate, this is not going to work. Love <laughs> <laughs> it. I do, I do. And what ha- what happened then to the startup then, out of interest? Yeah, so this is this is where it got a bit tough. So because you know, again, at the time it was heartbreaking, but um, because we were a bit ahead of the time, and also because I got kind of uh, headhunted and um, asked to come back for a job here, it kind of got merged with another company locally in Boston. So it didn't kind of completely sure. disappear. Because you were funded but, by the univers- by Harvard University to do yeah, this exactly. anyway. So I imagine but they had control over what you were doing yeah. so to some degree. Our, yeah, the primary care center and stuff. And so some of our work was taken over by local that started doing this. So they took over some of the IP and stuff. And also Got it. Um, that, that so like the thing, it was, you know, at the time, 
I mean, it wasn't upsetting at all, but it was the fact that actually what we've done has been meaningful. We've learned some good lessons now. If and when I go back to another startup potentially or another company, these are some really important lessons I can tell yeah. you. Um, which obviously I'm sharing with colleagues on, on, and you today, really, because <laughs> that I think that if we all think like this, we can all together make the health system a much better place. Nice. And just on that, just on that startup that you did build and just the lessons out of that, just for the people that, are, that might be in that space at the moment, from what I know of the, of the bits and bobs in that sector of adherence and inhalers and sensors and all that sort of stuff, it seems to be that the biggest and best business model is towards pharma, if I'm correct, and clinical trials and, and that side of things. Is that, do you know anything of that space at the moment? Is that still what's going on? Yeah, you're right, actually, James. So there's been a few companies like Propeller Health. And yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, who've gone down that route. And for pharma, this makes total sense because they can adhere the management. They can adhere, sorry, they can um, keep track of the adherence. They can keep track of um, how people are using it and stuff, but also redefine the whole pathway. But what I'm also seeing um, is that providers are coming on board because, you know, if we move towards value-based care and we move towards, yeah. uh, you know, capitation type business models from a health system and we move towards uh, incentives that are we are encouraged to keep our populations healthy outside of hospitals then actually the the incentive becomes for a lot of these providers to say how do we keep our population healthy and this is again one way of doing it um you know i can see for example you know commissioners going around saying okay asthma is a big problem in our local patch this could work quite well if it's a tried and tested technology um and we can buy a bulk of this you know from a commissioner's perspective. So I, I think the pharma model is probably still the main one, but I do think there's other ways of um, cutting it, you know, and no, uh, the, the third aspect of it actually, uh, which probably isn't as mainstream, but could well happen is that, you know, some people may even pay out of pocket for something like this. Yeah, I think we're seeing this more and more, mate, especially as you quite rightly pointed out, almost at the start when you were talking about, you know, the customers often being parents, parents will far easier pay for stuff for children offer than than for, for themselves right so yeah if it's up in the lives of kids i can definitely see parents doing that although obviously we'd much prefer here in the uk for it to be done centrally or at least in a region um yeah, exactly. paid for that way but that's definitely where we're more comfortable and where i think the scalable models are but tell me so it wasn't just any job that you came back from the us to do was it no so well it wasn't it wasn't it was good job hopefully uh, yeah. <laughs> so basically i um so yeah so the job i came back to was essentially being uh kind of a special advisor stroke senior fellow to simon stevens who you may or may not know is um it still is actually the current ceo of nhs england um and uh you know when, when i came back in 2014 kind of the remit i was given was to say okay you, you've done tech related work in in the us you, you've researched and understood the importance of introducing technology in health systems. Because one of the things I did at Brigham was, um, uh, as well as a startup, one of the things we did was help set up an innovation lab there, which was kind of an innovation hub, which oh, wow. was to say, again, you know, the thing about Brigham uh, is that they, they, they're great at producing world-class papers and research, right? So week in, week out, they've got papers in the journal, JAMA, not a problem. But what they really wanted to do was, well, how do we capitalize on this and commercialize some of this research into digital technologies or you know, spin-offs. So the purpose of the innovation hub that we set up was to say, okay, 
not only can we help people internally to commercialize some of this, but how do we then bring in people from the outside in to help them scale, but also diffuse the innovations across a complex system? Uh, you know, nearly 800 beds, 10,000 people working there, you know, six and a half billion dollar type organization. That in itself is a behemoth in terms of introducing any sort of technology. So that, with those experiences, essentially, when I came work for Simon, it was to say, okay, how do we then bring some of that thinking here? Now, you know, the NHS goes through its own trials and tribulations. And, and, and the key thing that had been happening in the NHS when I joined in 2014 was that they were still recovering from the scars of the National Programme for IT, uh, which, as you know, back in mid-2000s, when the government spent, under Tony Blair, spent nearly up to £15 billion on trying to get the NHS digitised in terms of electronic records. With that, through those scars, but also because we had seen more and more advancements in digital health, um, the question was for Simon was to say, okay, how can we make the NHS more innovative than it is today, essentially? And how can mm. we create new incentives? How can we create an infrastructure that allows digitization? Now, easier said than done, obviously. And you know, when I joined, very excited. Um, you know, were here behind my ears. You know, just felt like I'd come out of medical school, little kid on the block, <laughs> uh, and I had a couple of colleagues working with me, and off we went. And and again, you know, you talked about earlier about learning curves and stuff. Now, this was a real steep learning curve because, um, you know, firstly, I didn't know this world existed, right? This whole world of number 10 and politics yeah politics and policy right and obviously i'd done a bit of reading around it i'd done it in terms of my masters in america and stuff but that was all global focused we did some nhs work you know not you know the the influence of number 10 the importance of dh importance of treasury all these different healthcare agencies you know the health and reform act post 2012 and just to put this into perspective for the people listening i mean you know, special yeah. advisor to Simon Stevens, so special advisor to the chief executive of NHS England, i.e. the entire NHS in the UK, yeah. Yeah. might not seem that close to actual, you know, the prime minister and the treasury and all those things, but it is, isn't it? Because oh, it's just it so, the NHS England basically is the Department of Health, kind of. Um, at least they're extremely, extremely close. Um yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you know, we were one step removed. So it was basically yeah. Simon and then at the time, George Osborne and David Cameron and, you know, David Cameron kind of really got Simon to move back here and, and take the job. And it was a big job because, um, you know, from at that perspective, like you said, now the budget's around £130 billion pounds a year, uh, looking after the health of 55 million people, you know, it's a big spender of public sector money and it's huge in terms of what we do and, and, and the scale that we have with it. Uh, and so trying to introduce policy that makes innovation and the whole digitization thing, it's a hugely complex and daunting task, which I can tell you now it was back, back in the time. I was like, this is easy. What's the problem? <laughs> right, right. Papers and get a few people to sign it off and off you go. Um, <laughs> You know, because if it's a good idea, people just do it, right? Surely that's just the way it should work in politics. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's actually really, really interesting because, you know, when I joined and I started writing a bit more of what I was doing, you know, and then a lot of tech companies started coming my way and said, oh, come on, you know, you work for the CEO. Surely you can just say, uh -huh. use my product and off we go. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I started, I was like, yeah, okay, we can try that. But as I realized the complexities, <laughs> and I mean serious complexities here, uh, that you know, you, you can't read this in textbooks or, or pick up a book and read about it. I mean, this is, 
serious complexities because what the Reform Act in 2012 did was actually really fragment the country into small little fiefdoms across the country, essentially. Okay, yeah. so we had these kind of something called the clinical commissioning groups, which were essentially set up to provide care locally and give local people the autonomy to meet the needs of the local population. So we had around, when I joined in 2014, around 212 CCGs across the country, each looking after around 300,000 people. Each of them had their own administration function, each of them had their governance, each of them had their own tendering process, contracting process, so and so forth. So you can see that if you're a tech entrepreneur, or if you want to introduce innovation into the system, you pretty much have to go to each of these to say, take my product on board. Yeah. And there was no way I could do this from sitting in Skipton House, the ivory tower, which is headquarters, <laughs> to say, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we have this new innovation, off we go. Now, you know, you know, at the time, reflecting back to it, we, we um, then introduced quite a few initiatives. You know, Simon was really up for innovation, and he still is. Like, as you know, recently we, we saw that um, the government had launched in this country the AI award. You might have heard about it, you know, £140 million. That's a yeah. year mark to, to go and help companies that are doing genuine AI-related work to come and help them not only in the research stage, but those that have proven and got evidence to help them scale up. So there's lots of incentives and programs out there now, but the question for us is always is how do we join all the dots up? Mm. Um, but when I joined, for example, you know, there wasn't really, we were probably about four or five years behind the US at the time because there weren't really any initiatives or programs in the country. There weren't really any tariffs or incentives. And the thing is, we had tried this before. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't the first time we were doing this when I joined. But the question was, how can we you know, kick it off again? How can we bring the momentum back? How can we bring the narrative back to demonstrate that this matters? Because exactly, you know, what we're doing today may not be relevant uh, or we have to really change the way we do things. Mm. And this is it, right? Because you're, you're a guy that just uh, essentially just got stuff done, right? <laughs> so I imagine walking into this system where things often do not get done, they get talked about, but often they do not get done. I mean, what was it that, you look back on that year now that you're like, I did this or I changed it. Is there anything that you look back on proudly and you're like, in my year, I achieved because I did this, this and this? Yeah, a few things really. So I, I spent um, I spent two and a half, yeah, just over two, yeah, just shy of two and a half years with Simon. And oh, nice. Yeah, and then the other kind of two and a half years I spent as the Associate uh, Chief Clinical Information Officer. So I was just short of five years at NHS England. Um, and so, look, a few things I think I can be proud of, um, which uh, either I helped kick, kick off or, or was involved with setting up or, you know, was just involved with in general. So, firstly, mm. you know, the NHS Diabetes Prevention Programme. Now, when Simon asked us to get that going, because, again, you know, the Diabetes Prevention Programme, there was evidence to say that it reduced HbA1c by just short of 3% and it reduced outcomes and weight uh, by a certain percentage and, you know, significant percentage in that, if this was a drug, this would be on your shelves within two years. And the pub, you know, the evidence for the diabetes prevention program was published in 2003, I think it was, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it took us nearly 14 years later that we were talking about this prevention program. I mean, because it's prevention, no one cares about it. But the point is now it's it's up and running. It's, it's you know, I believe it's nearly hit 100,000 people a year, which was what we we're saying. But the more important thing is that actually we've gone to the digital version because the digital version has been up and coming. There's a few digital companies now providing the diabetes prevention program. Yeah. And it's an exciting space, you know, because generally it helps people 
at their convenience on demand uh, to help them manage their diet and their lifestyle and help reduce the risk of diabetes, right? Which I think is hugely exciting. So that was one thing I've been really proud of. The second is the um, incentive uh, tariff, which we created the innovation and and, uh, technology payment plan, which is the IT. Oh, that was you. Nice. Okay. So that was again to say, okay, look, everyone's talking about, you know, how we need to do it, but what is the key thing that we need to do to help people actually adopt technology? And, it, and one of it always comes down to money. How can yeah, we reduce the people? risk? Yeah. And so we created that, and now that's been taken over by the Accelerated Access Collaborative. You know, there's more innovations on that payment plan, and we hope to see that being expanded more and more. And I guess the biggest piece of work that I did was um, lead a big review with Bob Wachter, uh, which was, um, so at the time, Jeremy Hunt, when he was Secretary of State, one of the things he did was he read uh, Bob's book called Digital Doctor, How Pipe and Harm in the Did he? He read the book? Yeah, he read the book. Jared was actually very good at that. So he would read these great books and, and then invite these authors to come in and help the government say, look. Interesting. And so at the time then, um, I think Tim Kelsey was, yeah, Tim Kelsey was the national director. And then he, he came up to me and said, Harpreet, I've got a project for you. I want you to work with Bob and go and figure out how we can digitize the NHS better okay i was like sure and so <laughs> and so off we went so bob came in uh and i spent a good six months with bob back so we toured the country uh had a really good um advisory panel made up of all the good and great both in the uk and america and internationally in general where we really looked at the, the kind of the, not only the challenges but also learned from previous uh digitization efforts really uh, in particular primary care for example is that why primary care have been so successful at digitizing its records and become electronic in that actually virtually 100 percent of primary care in the uk mm. is digitized anyway we put all these recommendations together and we also learned from the us experience so if i can quickly spend two seconds on that so mm. the us basically post 2008 recession when obama came to power um said the best way to kick off the economy was to invest in something called the American Recovery Act, the ARA. And, um, and one of the key things that came out of the ARA was something called the High Tech Act, which was the Health IT Technology uh, and Economic Act or something on those lines. <laughs> something, yeah. And basically, it was to say that High Tech was the acronym for it. And basically, what it was, they said, spend $35 billion on introducing electronic health records and technology across all u.s hospitals now that was a phenomenal piece of work because the adoption of ehrs around 2011 was around 10 to 12 percent across the u.s okay mm-hmm. and by 2015 it had gone to beyond 90 percent. so in the space of five years, 90 90 yeah, yeah so within the five years they're not goodness me the amount of money but they're incentivized it in a way that actually everyone was falling over the heels to go and get electronic health wow. records adopted. And not only did that give a, give, us a, give a signal to the system that okay, healthcare now become a digital business and all these ecosystems are force, uh, forming, but it meant that there was a lot we could learn from that in the UK. So we spent a lot of time reflecting on those lessons. And the thing about that was that um, what the US did well, but not so well also, was that they incentivized adoption, but they forgot to incentivize information exchange and interoperability, which for those that don't mm. understand what that means, essentially was how do we connect different systems together so that we can share information seamlessly? Because ultimately healthcare is about information and the more information we have, the better service we can provide, right? So learning from mm. that, we published a review in, in 2016, 
okay uh, and and the recommendations came into play now as with this you know for me learning on the job learning how we can make effective policy one of the things i encouraged colleagues to do especially bob and, and the secretary of state at the time because there was a big phenomenon happening at the time called brexit now this was we were in the middle of this when when the review was going on and the review was about to be published so when the referendum happened uh we were about to in the june uh we were about to uh june 16 we were about to announce the recommendations and the review but then brexit happened so number 10 pushed us back quite rightly actually because if we had published them it would have just gone on the shelves and no one would have cared about it yeah exactly but uh but then it got pushed back to September. And then we had a space of three months to actually go and do something about this. So one of the things I encourage them to say, look, for any good review, if you actually start implementation of your recommendation before it gets launched, then people jump onto that wagon, jump onto the fact that actually we're doing something rather than just talking about it. And then people take it seriously. So three things that came out of it quickly, which then made people realize that we were serious about this. One was to appoint a national CCIO. And we did that with Keith McNeil at the time. Yeah, uh, which was uh, a great uh, sign uh, signing. The second was we earmarked uh, just over a billion pounds for the Global Digital Exemplar Program, which was to give money to global sites across the NHS. Um, sorry, uh, sites across the NHS to make them globally recognised for their digitisation efforts, and we had a good number of those, and so the money went to them. And the third was to launch the NHS Digital Academy, which was kind of my baby in terms of uh, thought, you know, I remember writing a brief for it back in uh, that summer. It was a one-page document where I said, we need <laughs> a digital academy. Because the thing for me was that, you know, when we were touring the country, there was all these people working in tech and digital, but they didn't really get it, and nor did they have the skills. Now, the thing about policymaking world, which has been fascinating for me, is that we come up with lots of good ideas, right? There's, we're not short of ideas. But what we struggle to do is, give our workforce new skills and new tools to actually implement those ideas. Go and so, execute, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just like waking up one morning and going, all right, now we're going to do some digital redesign or digital transformation. Yeah, but what are we doing with our workforce to actually help them do the job better? It's so funny you say that, mate. I literally just saw a tweet, actually, from somebody who has moved role from what they were doing before, basically running an organization, to now being the digital transformation person of that organization. <laughs> yeah. And quite literally just as you've just said in my head i was just thinking yeah but if you were running it before what what are you going to do differently like how have you all of a sudden been able to just digitally transform it like with no extra skills or knowledge or resource that's 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 strange to me absolutely and and this is the thing jane and i'm glad you put this up because for me the biggest barrier well well one of the biggest barriers to you know for especially for tech entrepreneurs and innovators is that they find it very difficult to engage with the workforce because exactly. the workforce don't get it. Now, if the workforce don't get it, how are you going to have a meaningful conversation to say, this is my problem and can you help me with this problem? You know, because, because you're constantly met with resistance because right, the workforce because, do not understand, nor do they care, and quite rightly so, because they've got a job to do and yeah, this is just going to get in the way. Exactly. And they're fearful, and they're fearful they don't want to take the risk, but they don't even understand exactly. language. So there you have like two like smart people potentially knocking on their heads, talking different languages. And for me, it was to say, okay, instead of us from the center pushing technology to people, why are we creating this pool demand where people actually go out and say, look, these are the problems I have in my local organization or my local system or my local ecosystem. Who's out there that can help us solve this problem? 
So that whole pull thing is much more attractive and it works more effectively rather than trying to always push things from the center because then the uptake is limited. And that's one of the reasons why the National IT wasn't as successful is because we didn't engage our clinicians. We didn't get them to understand why this mattered, right? Mm. And I remember quite memorably, and I won't say which trust it was or where I was, um, but I was out when I was interviewing for the WACS review. You know, I met this this chief clinical information officer, CTIO. Now, for me, this was kind of a newish type of career where, you know, you could bring in your clinical world with a informatics tech world and, you know, bridge those gaps, understand research, understand evidence, but also have an executive position, you know. And in the US, these, they're quite common, like, and they're rock stars, really, the CMIOs, as they call them, chief medical informatics officers. Whereas in the UK, we, we didn't have as many. And mm. I went to the individual and said, well, what was your kind of trajectory? How did you get to... Uh, this job really and he was like look um, you know I'm a consultant uh, and I was in a meeting and uh, someone said who's got interest in IT I put my hand up and I got the job (laughs) okay that's great but you know if if we're really serious about raising the game if we're really serious about you know bringing in rock stars and bringing people to understand what the art of the possible is giving them knowledge of digital data science understanding you know like AI machine all these new and wonderful things that we're talking about we have to really educate them. And hence the Digital Academy was born. Um, and, you know, it's been great. Jeremy at the time was like, this is fantastic. Gave the money, six million pounds, went to this program. The plan was to train 300 people. And we're about to start cohort three in April this year. Um, and, you know, we've had a great leadership team with Rachel Dunscombe and Imperial Harvard and Edinburgh that have come together as a consortium to offer this. Um, and, you know, for me, that's been a real you know, if I can say, uh, and not kind of blow my own trumpet, a success in terms of helping really people learn new skills. Hey, I, was about, I was about to say, like, how, how cool is that? You know, coming up with an idea, writing a one-pager, giving yeah. it to Jeremy Hunt, who was, you know, Secretary of State for Health, and then getting six million quid. Not many people on earth can say that they've ever done that. That's very yeah. cool. No, it was, it was good fun. And, you know, I was actually reflecting on, because we had our first graduation of this back in November last year and, uh, at the, you know, and we had it at the House of Lords and stuff. And I dug out the archive, that one page, and I was reading through it and I was like, wow. From this to what we have today, it's, it's so been cool. a great journey. It's been a great journey. And, you know, it hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been easy. And it's been in collaboration with a lot of great people, uh, you know, who, who've inputted into this and made it what it is. But it's exactly the type of thing we need for our workforce where we actually invest in our workforce and give them new ways of thinking and doing. And, you know, there's been a lot of good spillover from that. Um, and, you know, then Eric Topol came in. We, we've also, by the way, we've got a good knack in the UK of inviting American uh, academics. <laughs> to come and solve our problems. So, so Bob came first, Bob Baxter. Then Eric Topol came uh, a year and a half later, and I was involved with him as well. And that was looking at how can we help um, understand what the advancements of technology means for the role of clinicians, uh, how we train them, how, we, how they function, uh, and, and what their careers look like. And now there's a big piece of work happening on the back of that. Um, which, which again, you know, if we're looking at it from an entrepreneurial tech perspective, is that what this basically means is that we need to start working in collaboration with people from different backgrounds and different parts of the ecosystem, right? The NHS can't solve a lot of its problems on its own. We have to work with colleagues from industry. We have to. You work can't see me, mate, but I am nodding furiously <laughs> because, oh my god, the amount of times I say it on this podcast that we need those individuals with with external innovation ideas, people that haven't existed in healthcare their entire career and are indoctrinated by it. Um, I, I liken it to if someone just told you to try and think of a new colour 
you wouldn't be able to because you've only ever seen our spectrum of color. Whereas, uh, and, that, and that's basically how, you know, people are thinking if they've only existed on what, in one world. But if you've spoken to a computer scientist or a data scientist about your problems in healthcare, the chances are they're going to open you up to this entirely new world of opportunity and ways of doing it. And it's a really strong argument for people doing these careers before they come into medicine or indeed after or indeed during their absolutely and you know people talk about like philosophy backgrounds ethics backgrounds you know it's all sorts of things that we need and one of the biggest you know, i've just been appointed on the board of uh, health education england and that's kind of with the work i've done previously but also to bring a clinical digital insight into what this means for the future workforce and um you know and it's been fascinating so far but you know we, we're getting and encouraging our inverted commas users and customers come and tell us what, what is it that they need because ultimately we need to respond to their needs um, and you know if you look at the top review and the program work that's happening on the back of it now you know there will be new types of skills coming in new types of roles of clinical data scientists you know thinking about how do we create multidisciplinary teams in, in all this stuff and, and, and I think it's hugely exciting because the practice of medicine to what it has been to what it will be in the future is going to be completely different um, in a good way, you know, but the main thing that will remain constant for me in all of that is trust, right? And this is what I say to a lot of startups I meet is that the trust aspect of a lot of this has to be centered to what you're doing. Firstly, being ethical, ensuring that you're safe with data uh, and the privacy, but also what this means from a trust perspective, right? Because, mm -hmm. You know, we've seen some uh, huge, as I call them, and from a clinical perspective, red flags coming out of this, where you know people have misused or abused trust, and what that means is that it requires one or two companies out there to do that, and it has a knock-on effect to the whole ecosystem, because ultimately, it takes a lot to get clinicians, management, patients, or anyone else involved with healthcare to trust new things, different things, right? But in order to do that, totally you have agree. To do it the right way. I totally agree. There was a there was a BMJ paper which came out either today or yesterday, looking at the B to C. Um, uh, they analyze skin for melanoma type things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it only looked at the B to C ones. So it didn't look at the B to B ones. But it basically just said that the studies weren't powerful enough. It's not good enough. It's going to, if you look at the economics of it, it's going to put way more of a burden on the health system because the, the algorithms just aren't accurate enough. And I know Neil from Skin Analytics really well, who isn't B2C, he's B2B and intentionally so because he's worked so hard to make his algorithm so accurate and he's so yeah. obsessed with evidence and all the rest of it. And, you know, he sent me a message just being, just being like, look, have you seen this? I mean, this is what these guys are doing and it just goes to show why i'm being so obsessed the way i am because these guys are going to kill us all if they keep going along these lines you know so it's not it's it's a shame that 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 can happen but you're completely right you know if if that technology gets into the hands of people and something bad happens we do lose all the trust and it is not okay when there's other companies around like skin analytics that are over here trying to perfect their algorithm before it goes anywhere near humans and they're doing prospective yeah. studies and they're doing all these the, the, the right things and it's it, and you're completely right that that is the best way to build a tech company with integrity rather than 
trying to do it the other way for speed. It just doesn't work in health. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the final pieces of work I did when I was uh, still the Associate Chief Clinical Information Officer and interesting was to develop this code of conduct uh, for those uh, organizations who are doing data-driven innovation, but generally actually those in, in general doing innovation in tech to say, here are the 10 principles that we expect you to follow, especially if you're doing using AI type technology, you know, because behaviors are really important, James, you know, um, you know, the, the, the attention span for a lot of people working in healthcare is quite limited, not because they're not smart enough. It's just because there's tremendous amount of pressure from all different ways. Now, Mm. usually not only do they don't understand often the technology, they don't often look under the bonnet um, to see what's going on, but this is why the trust and, you know, the right behaviors and principles have to come from companies as well. Right. Because, they have a responsibility to society to say what we're doing is ethical, what we're doing is right, because healthcare is not like any other industry. You're, you know, you're, it's about patients' lives, it's about their, what you, how we treat them and what we do with them. Now, like I said, and like you said, it only requires one or two things to go wrong before the whole thing backfires. Mm. And this is where I also think VCs and investors can play a really important role. You know, why aren't they holding their companies to account for being, uh, doing the things right where the right principles and behaviors? Right. The problem is Completely that we agree again, mate. In health, yeah. in health tech, it's incredibly relevant to completely understand the sector, like it is in any other sector. I think cool. you're gonna you're gonna be able to do far more in terms of making good investments if you just understand the space. And I think it's a huge issue in digital health that yeah. that lack of native digital health investor because they're they're either from life sciences or tech or they've they've got a bit of a health tech function and all the rest of it. I think it it just requires such a, a level of knowledge from all the complexities and intricacies. And as I keep saying on this podcast, you know, there is no one business model. There is no one customer. There is no one process or way of doing things for these companies. It's very hard to unite them around one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. It just means that health tech is so complex and you, you, you can be an expert in health tech and nothing else because it is so complex yeah. is my extremely biased opinion, obviously, but, <laughs> but no, absolutely. that's definitely what I observe. It's definitely how yeah. I've got to where I am with that opinion anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the thing, right? You know, we have all these metrics around, you know, growth and scale and how many customers you've got and how much money you're raising. But why don't we have metrics like, you know, how many good relationships have you built or how safe are you or, you know, how ethical are you or how diverse are you? I mean, these are all things that matter in yeah. order for you to become a good product. And, you know, if I was a VC in my life, these are the things I'm going to be looking at rather than worrying about profit and loss all the time. I mean, look, that's important. And I know that's important to grow a company. But there's a short-term and long-term view, right? And I think for something like AI and machine learning right now, and you know, it's it's come up on this podcast a few times. You know, I spoke to Hugh Harvey, who I'm sure yeah. you know and have and yeah, good and, guy, Hugh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I spoke to Hugh about it, and I just said, you know, what are the who's going to win the, the the short-termists or the long-termists? And he was just like, <laughs> like it's obviously the long-term. Like the people that are thinking about regulation and have a QMS and have all you know quality management system, you know, all these things, and and have been spending twenty percent of their resource on regulation. Yes, it's boring, and yes, nobody likes to talk about it because it isn't particularly exciting but the companies that have been doing that guess what they're now doing prospective studies and now they're getting to the point where people are actually buying these products they're buying these algorithms they're using them on patients the people that are just you know moving quickly and don't have that regulation behind them fine you might do okay but realistically it's these people that are good that are gonna that are gonna last over the long term which is actually very nice to hear that the good guys are gonna win in the end right 
Absolutely. And, 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 but like I said, you know, if people realize this, like you're saying early on, everyone can be a good guy, right? There's no need to have inverted commas bad guys in this world. Um, in this particular area, I know it's easier said than done, but you know, the choice is yours essentially. Um, whether you're a founder or investor or, uh, you know, I think you can have a lot of influence on how well you do on this front. Um, because I think it's really important. Love it. So tell me about the, I was going to say that the final stretch of the Harpreet journey, I think you're very much still at the beginning of your journey, but what are you up to right now? Yeah, good question, Deb. So after all this stuff, um, you know, one of the things that was missing from my backbone was to say, okay, I really need to understand the world I'm in, which is healthcare and, and medicine, actually. Um, and I'd like the, to the final thing to become an expert in was the thing you started <laughs> with, right? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, you know, I'd done a bit of doctoring. I'd obviously done my house jobs here and then I moved to the US and I came back and then I went back into training less than full-time i.e. my residency and um, then basically as of last uh, April um, May time and decided to go back into it full-time so I'm about to finish um, in the next kind of eight weeks or so which is oh, congratulations uh, mate yeah thanks but it's been absolutely fascinating and you know wonderful if if I can say it, because what it's allowed me to do is kind of bring all my experiences together, bring that 100,000 foot together and back into frontline clinical medicine to say, is everything what we've been thinking about and doing, is it actually making a difference or is it helping people? But more importantly, actually, how can we improve the system from the mm. front line onwards? And that kind of full circle have, for me has been real eye-opening and you know, it's allowed me to reflect tremendously. I've got this little black book that I carry around, which will make lots of notes in. Um, and you know, I'm hoping that where I go next from this will make me hopefully a better uh, individual and it'll make me a better doctor. But more importantly, if I go down the route of management policy again, will make me a better policymaker or even entrepreneur, actually. I mean, any of those things that I decide. <laughs> 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 I was going to say, you've already done the steep part of your curve, mate, and you've done all the steep parts of all the curves. Like you've, you've literally done all of them. So the world's your oyster by the sounds of things. Yeah, I mean, but I like to, you know, I think one of the things I've also been working on. Um, which I also recommend to a lot of students I speak to, and, and if I can call them youngish doctors coming through, is that all these experiences have allowed me to reflect and think about what's matters to me and what's important to me, right? And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, I see a lot of doctors who are also trying to set up companies on the side or still want to do research. I'm just like, that's all good and well, and you can learn from that. But, you know, medicine is a full-time job. You know, it's a proper job, you know what I mean? Building a company is a proper job. If you're mm. going to do it, do it properly, do it focused on it, not just. Um, and for me, obviously, learning on that is that whatever I've done, I've done it one at a time. But at the same time, all these experiences then allow you to really think about what your true North Star is, as they call. Um, and as you reflect on it, you think about it, you know, hopefully you can optimize uh, yourself and your performance and, and end up doing great things. So that's kind of the fun thing I'm in at the moment. And then let's see, hopefully. Uh, Next few months, obviously, I've also I forgot to mention, I should have said at the start, I've, I've had a baby boy recently, two and a half weeks old. So, uh, oh, lovely. That's, uh, that's another. I liked part. the photo on Twitter, I think. <laughs> well, honest, the reason why, I think for me, that was a massive thankful moment to thank the NHS, which, you know, a lot of people knocked down. But that's very nice. Touch wood, we had a phenomenal experience because they were just absolutely brilliant. And, you know, how else do you thank them apart from mm-hmm. making sure that the public are aware of what's going on? lovely so dude listen you're you're now you know settling into to being a full-time gp you've got this insane knowledge of technology you're keeping every door wide open i guess you're in a really really good position 
to start maybe integrating new tech into your work or at least advising companies on I guess with your experience of everything you're doing but also your current position I mean are you doing any advisory work to any companies are you actively looking at any tech to particularly work on to bring in how, how is it working for you and your relationship with kind of health tech at the moment yeah no good question James um, so yeah I, I am doing some advisory stuff at the moment which is basically helping a lot of companies contextualize their product and you know bring that clinical insight helping them think through strategically helping them you know, understand this ecosystem. You know, one that's kind of cool, yeah, because you speak both languages. I mean, the reason I ask is because it seems like that's a really good role for you. Because as I say, you speak the well, speak you speak many languages. You speak the language of policy, you speak the language of tech, you speak the language of entrepreneurship, and you speak obviously the, the clinical language as well, which kind of sets you up perfectly for that kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, like I said, for me it's about adding value and making sure that good companies and good products yeah, come on board because you know they are um so good like for example you know there's a lot of hype and noise about ai at the moment and like i said i think it's important and i've done some uh, work on that as well but i still think it's not about the technology i get people to focus on the big picture here um because the technology will always improve it's about understanding the cultural context understanding how we get people to use it you know building networks is important mm. having that evidence part of it's important so the few three or four things that i involved with include that for example strategy thinking about clinical context thinking about how to build networks you know helping them with their messaging building a campaign etc yeah. so no it's been very exciting like i said and um you know i have to you know it's really nice to add value to a lot of these companies but also give them the opportunity to really come in and uh help solve the problems of the uh, NHS. And do you think that is your kind of over, overarching advice really, which is, as you've just sort of said, you know, always keep that bigger picture in mind. It's not just about, you know, being laser focused on solving a particular problem with a particular bit of tech. It's actually a lot about the fluffy stuff around it as well, actually, when it comes to innovating at scale. Is that kind of the message? Absolutely, yeah. It's not a one-time, uh, sorry, a one one track thing where you can just bring your product in you have to understand all the different factors that will help uh, all the way from political to cultural to clinical to social technical to understanding you know those societal and technical problems you know having a good understanding of how money flows how payments made how evidence works regulation works i mean tons of all this stuff obviously you, know, I can you need a youtube channel mate you get loads of people watching this stuff or maybe i should get you on this podcast a bit more to talk about those yeah, in a bit yeah. more detail Absolutely, good fun. But like I said, these are things that, you know, like for example, I, I saw a company recently and said, um, you know, who came in and, and they thought regulation evidence was the same thing. I was like, no, it's not. You know, no. <laughs> yeah, fair. Doesn't mean you've got evidence. They're like, well, if I've got regulation, that means I'm approved, right? And I'm like, no, because you might be regulated, but you still need the evidence to show if this works or not. You know, that's <laughs> the kind of example where just because a technology person has read that the market size of UK is X, Y, and these are the big problems. I can just mm. develop technology, off we go. But it doesn't quite work like that. And the, the point I'm trying to make, James, all this is that it's not an easy, it's no, there's no easy win to this, right? You still mm. have to hustle. You still have to develop a, a good value proposition. You need to develop a good business. You need to then get the right people around you. So all these things we, 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 we do, which I think makes the overall success more likely. 
I think that's a solid message to end on, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've I've learned a lot more about you than uh, than I previously knew as well. There's loads of bits in there that I've not heard before. So thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, mate. And uh, the way that we end these podcasts, mate, is that I just hand back over to you to just summarise a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're up to, maybe your advisory stuff, and to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience. So by all means, uh, take it away. Oh, thanks. Well, look, um, you know, just to summarise then, doctor, policymaker, potential uh, entrepreneur of that background. It, actually, one of the things I want to say is that, you know, when I was reflecting back in my time uh, uh, working in the policy world, I always thought, um, you know, what kind of, what, you know, what I was doing, what kind of title would I've got? And after doing some research, I came across a guy called John Kingdon, who, who was a political scientist back in the 70s. And basically, he described something called policy entrepreneurs. And these are individuals that work in the policy world who are hustlers who get their policy to the forefront and actually make it happen. And then I realized, actually, maybe that's what I was, a policy <laughs> entrepreneur. Anyway, going back to uh, what I was saying before. So, um, yeah, just to summarize. So, yeah, doctor, trained in the UK, have spent time in the US, um, so I have a good understanding of that world as well, and uh, worked at national level and now at a local level as GP. Um, have a good, strong understanding of clinical but also understanding of technology and the impact that can have on how we provide healthcare. You know, currently, like I said, a lot of my focus is on the workforce, thinking about what the future of the workforce looks like, how we can introduce new skills, uh, and uh, more importantly, um, thinking about the latest technology and the impact that will have. So we're looking for new voices, younger voices, diverse voices to come forward that will help us think through that, but also, you know, interesting and new technologies that, we haven't thought about um, that can help shape the UK's healthcare system, essentially. Um, yeah, and if anyone wants advice in general on, on various things, bits involved, do get in touch, I guess. Um, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon, James. Awesome. And for the people that do want to get in touch with you, Harpery, what's the best way for them to contact you? Have you got a LinkedIn um, or is it email? Yeah. What's the best way for them to get Yeah, LinkedIn's me? great. You can add me on LinkedIn, Harpreet Sood. Um, or if you want to email me, you can email me as well. It's basically Harpreet dot sued that's s-w-o-d at nhs.net uh, and then if i can't help you i can certainly introduce the people that can help you another way we can uh, help each other and uh, be collaborative and do some great things love it and for everybody listening i'll put the links to harper's email and his linkedin in the description of this episode so harper it's been a pleasure dude thank you so much for coming on thanks james all the best bye for now hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.